I speak to you in the name of the one holy and living God. We hold these truths to be self-evident, says our Declaration of Independence. In many truths and social structures we once took for granted and assumed to be stable are now in question. The whole world feels more precarious than many of us once imagined as we experience a collective awakening and awareness, the delicate balances of life, prompted by the changing climate, the waves of pandemic, flagging commitment to the covenant of democracy, tribal polarization, nations potentially on the brink of war. It's a lot to navigate. It wears on our heart, our soul, our psyche, our mind and body. And on a day-to-day -day basis, it means that when you and I apply familiar levers of agency, they don't produce the outcomes we once thought self-evident and predictable, which leads us to be unsure about what is the right next step, which means that this is probably a pretty good time to ask, I wonder what God is up to. I wonder what God is doing. Not that I'm proposing that God is the mastermind and manipulator of worldly events, no, not at all. Rather, where in the midst of all this can we see God's hand, God's love? How might we notice and come alongside and become part of whatever it is God is desiring, whatever God is up to? Now, what does this look like? Well, for starters, it looks like a shift in posture, a shift in how you and I might enter and move through our day. And the shift comes first with simply asking the question, I wonder what God is up to. Because the question in itself loosens and unmasks my illusions of mastery and control. And it prompts me to pause and to wonder before I assume my agency, my action is required here. Maybe it's not about me. And to pay attention. God, what are you up to? Did you prompt that person to say the very thing I needed but did not know I needed to hear? Did you place me right in the middle of this conversation so that I would have to dig deep to find the courage to speak the word of your love? You know what God's love looks like, feels like, 
When she forgives you for the wrong you committed, it's been festering as shame and the grace washes over you and eases the tension in your muscles. Or when the adrenaline is coursing through you, you know you cannot leave this derogatory slur unaddressed. Or when your friend is by your side at your hour of need and it's only later that you realize that he abandoned all his plans for the day to be there with you. These are the movements of God. And paying attention to what God is doing is not a matter of noticing once and getting our marching orders. It's a matter of living each day with this intentional posture of open receptivity. We don't need to wait for the world to be tearing at the seams. For this, in a nutshell, is the life of prayer. Writes Carmelite nun Ruth Burroughs, almost always when we talk about prayer, we're thinking of something we do. And from that point, standpoint, questions, problems, confusion, discouragement, illusions multiply. For me, says she, it's important to correct this view. Prayer is essentially what God does, how God addresses us, looks at us. It is not primarily something we are doing to God, something we are giving to God, but what God is doing for us. And what God is doing for us is giving the divine self in love through our day-to-day -day interactions. We just heard read the end of the story about Joseph. The story began with a dream, and it ends now with Joseph's affirmation that it was all in God's hands all along, in a moment of extraordinary pathos and forgiveness. It's a fabulous tale, with family tension and jealousy and court intrigue and seduction and cloaked scoundrels and famine and salvation. It just, it just covers the whole spread. And the tension is set from the start because Joseph is one of 12 brothers and he's his father's favorite. So favored that his father gives him a beautiful robe. And one day as a boy, Joseph has a dream. And quote, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. <laughs> a caravan came along. The brothers sold Joseph off as a slave. They took his coat, they tore it, spilled blood on it, and told their poor father that Joseph had been eaten by a lion. Well, Joseph's travels lead him to prison, but his dreams and his gift of interpreting dreams gets him noticed first by the captain's beautiful wife, and finally by Pharaoh himself. Joseph rises through the ranks, and Pharaoh appoints him to be his right-hand man. Dreams warn of impending feast and famine, but thanks to Joseph, grain is stored up, the famine averted. The people, not only of Egypt, but of all the surrounding territories, are saved. Even his own brothers, now have come seeking food, not imagining their brother Joseph is even alive, never mind that it is he, this powerful dignitary, 
who stands before them. I'm your brother, Joseph, says he. They cannot see, blinded by shame and by fear that he will take vengeance. But Joseph says, do not be distressed because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Three times he says this. It was not you who sent me, but God. Finally, he's reunited with his long grieving father. It's fabulous. Go and read it. Genesis chapters 37 to 50. Well, much as it's only in the last chapter of a murder mystery that the gifted author ties up all the storylines and reveals that it was the professor all along, so our narrator now helps us see, after years of hardship and deceit and victory and intrigue, that God was present in every chapter in every interaction, in the malice, just as much as the grace. While this text is too ancient for us to know for sure when it was written or by whom, scholar Walter Brueggemann observes the narrative appears to belong to a generation of believers in a cultural climate where old modes of faith were embarrassing. The old idiom of faith had become unconvincing. Hmm, that sounds vaguely familiar. Says he, this narrative is a sophisticated literary response to a cultural theological crisis. It has a singular intention, it urges that in the contingencies of history, the purposes of God are at work in hidden and unnoticed ways. But the ways of God are nonetheless reliable and will come to fruition. Says he, the listening community is invited to live bracketed between the hint of the dream and the doxology of the disclosure. It is a call to us to let the dream be at work, even when its outcome is less than clear. Written 40 years ago, Brueggemann describes a context with uncanny parallel to our own time. Faith is embarrassing, it's unconvincing, we're being tossed about by forces as inexorable as the waves of the sea, so how might this story be available for us? Do we not hunger unwittingly for a reminder that despite today's headlines, God is in the midst of us? While this narrative lends itself to future articulations of God's providence and even predestination, it also opens the way understandings of mutuality and intersectionality. For bracketed as we are between the hint of the dream and the doxology of the disclosure, 
Might we enter this day with a posture of inquiry and wonder, seeking indications of the spirit? How is this emergent moment imbued with holiness? And just one scenario. For many of us, the determination to create affordable housing in this city and in this ward of the city has led us to new understandings of the impulses of the past. And beneath the bucolic calm of these tree-lined streets of Tenley Town and Friendship Heights lies a rich story with all the workings of human struggle, ambition, greed, racism, pathos, and cruelty interwoven with acts of creativity, grace, dignity, and many simply trying to get from one day to the next. So as we engage in our time with our own hopes and fears, competing claims of safety or repair of God's justice. We look for signs that the author of our salvation is bending the narrative toward love, paying attention to what God is doing does not mean abdicating responsibility. The stories need actors, and the actors need to act from love, with love, toward love. Jesus exhorts us to love your enemies, turn the other cheek, give both your coat and your shirt to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It seems a big ask, overwhelming in magnitude, but if I stepped into this moment, first wondering how God is among us, trusting that God is the first and primary agent, the response and engagement Jesus seeks flows naturally. God has brought us to this moment. How now will we respond? The psalmist says, put your trust in God and do good. Put your trust in God. That sounds so naive as to be downright foolish. Unless, of course, you consider how foolish it would be to not put your trust in God. Believe the dream. We'll sing praise to God by and by. Amen.